Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Timothy Taylor has two new shows, one in New York, which is Alex Katz's Subway Drawings, an exhibition of one of Katz's student sketchbooks, and a second in London, where Taylor is showing new work by Ding Yi, the abstract painter. Taken together, these shows highlight the ways in which Taylor is rethinking how art dealers work, what cities they show in, and what kind of gallery spaces they maintain. Uh, Timothy Taylor, you have a new show of Alex Katz's uh, drawings up in New York City. Uh, thank you for taking a little bit of time to talk to us uh, about it. Oh, it's a pleasure. I just point out they're not new drawings. <laughs> ha, it's a new show. <laughs> it is a new show of old drawings. Yes. So tell us a little bit about how the show came about, because it's not, you know, your standard established artist's uh, show. No, Alex, um, who I work with and will have worked with in London for the last, I think, uh, 17 years, uh, saw the space that I um, occupy on 19th Street and very much liked the the surprising beauty of it, the scale um, uh, almost had a sort of magic perspective. It's uh, 16 by 34 feet and about nine foot high. It has a, has a very beautiful volume and the walls are um, just brick painted white. Um, and he said to me that he had this sketchbook nobody had really seen of drawings he made between 1946 and 1949, many of which uh, were drawn on the subway um, when he was studying at Cooper Union. And he wondered if I'd be interested in showing them in this space, uh, which, of course, I, I, I leapt at. It presented certain problems in that these are not very big drawings. I forget, I think they're five by seven inches and then framed up a few inches bigger. Uh, and, of course, the walls being uh, an extremely uneven brick um, <laughs> makes it difficult to hang them in a straight line. But... Um, it is an amazing show and, a, and an amazing document of that time, actually. He's around 90 years old, and these drawings come from, you know, his early 20s. Uh, is, is there sort of a reason to so go so far back? Alex's work is still, his paintings are all based on drawings. Um, you know, he draws from life, he draws outside, and then he works these drawings to um, uh, to define the paintings and 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 then of course blows them up in their simplicity to define the really big paintings. This period in this sketchbook, um, in many ways, represents the moment where he found that line. Um, and as you as you see in the exhibition, they start with these uh, these rather hesitant pencil drawings, uh, mostly of portraits almost caricatures, actually, of, of, of individuals on the, on the subway, but fine and very subtle. And as the, the, the hang and the, the show progresses, it recognizes confidence in this line to the last few drawings, which were actually made of people sitting in the Cooper Union Cafe. And they are just a simple pen drawing, beautifully executed with great confidence, and that's approximately three years later. So... For me, it's about, it's telling the story. It's to some extent determining the origin of this line and uh, the clarity 
um, that he found at that moment. You also have borrowed from Colby College a painting from that period, which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is a very rare thing that is based upon one of the sketches. Yes, correct. Um, according to Alex, I, he, he rather implies that it's, it's certainly the only painting that relates to this sketchbook. Um, he says that in the 50s, he burnt most of the work that he'd made he says he destroyed a thousand works in the 50s. Um, I'm sure they weren't all paintings, but um, uh, he went on to joke that they were used for heating um, <laughs> so that he and Ada could stay warm. They lived pretty rough up there in uh, in Maine. Yeah, pretty rough. And it was very romantic, I'm sure. And every time you needed to heat the place up, you took another painting and just torched it. But it does make it, does make it a, very, a very early and rare painting. Yeah. The reason I mention it is it, it, it doesn't, look like what we've come to think of uh, Alex Katz, who's such a very recognizable um, uh, painter. Uh, and there's a currently the show Brand New and Terrific, which had been at Colby a year or so ago, uh, is now in Cleveland. And, and that too was a bit of a revelation for people to see uh, his painting in, in a, almost the beginning of his current style, but still quite different um, and, and fairly captivating. Do you think that that um, show has uh, opened up more interest to him? With, with, with any great artist, there's often a, um, a period of reflection where people go backwards to see where it all came from and to see the origin of the work they recognize. And, you can find uh, in Alex's his work, in these drawings from the 40s and paintings from the 50s, and then, of course, amazing little collages that came afterwards, um, a, a sort of the determination of his final style. And he, he was obviously very discerning. He was certainly working against the grain. Everything he says about that time is people basically telling him he shouldn't be a figurative artist and him doggedly getting setting about doing what he wanted to do. And, um, and I think that there's a kind of growing confidence in this work. And you can see it retrospectively when you look back, you can see it. Um, and uh, in, in relation to the market, I, I don't think it's especially a, a market-driven enthusiasm. I, I think the market is perhaps picking it up and recognizing that Alex was... Uh, a relevant figure in the 50s, which, you know, perhaps to many people, they're not aware of that. What he's told as his story of that period of, you know, constantly being, viewing himself as painting within the same tradition, but everyone else telling him he was, uh, you know, completely out of um, the mainstream of uh, abstract expressionism uh, and his commitment to, to that, uh, almost waiting for um, uh, others to see the value of what he was doing. Uh, which eventually uh, came, and his his determination to do his his own thing, as it were, to you know focus on uh, you know elements of fashion and uh, uh, women and these things that we eventually sort of see in 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 pop art, but uh, that he was doing long before uh, is, is yeah. always what one of the interesting things. He seems to be an artist that many people, I mean, has extraordinary 
recognition among people who go to art fairs and museums and all. I was at a talk he gave a few years ago when the brand new and terrific um, exhibition uh, opened that was absolutely packed. Uh, and yet in in the broader market set, sense, he's very well known, but there, there seems to be a fair amount of, um, I wouldn't say... Uh, confusion in his market, but I was talking to a dealer at TFAF who had had uh, two very striking paintings uh, uh, of his from, I think, the 70s uh, for sale yeah. earlier in the year. Uh, and the the woman that you thought would have been the big sale hadn't sold. Uh, and part of it, he was suggesting, was that... Um, uh, you know, the lack of sort of public prices made people somewhat wary of spending what the dealer thought the the works were were worth. Uh, and and so when I asked about where the work was, uh, he seemed to suggest that you know very few people want to sell their Alex Katz works. Uh, and so it, it, it's sort of this interesting, here's a very prolific uh, ar artist with a very long career who's got a lot of visibility, but is least visible in many ways on the auction market and only now more visible in the sort of art fair uh, world. I'm just trying to think over the last few years if there's been um, a, a sort of really single iconic cat painting that's come to auction to set a new benchmark. And I'm not really sure there has been, but that aside, um, the, the last, I would say the last 10 years have been the transformative years in his market. Uh, um, I think that, um, uh, in fact, the, the, the Saatchi show in London was a very big deal. Um, what Anthony Doffe has been doing for him in London and Tate is absolutely significant. There was a small show at the Portrait Gallery in London. Um, I, I don't know whether it was even Europe that started to build the momentum, but it's the last 10 years really in which Alex is, um, Alex is, is starting to be seen as one of the great painters of American painting over the last, um, well, let's say 50, 50 years. Um, he 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 draws a huge crowd because people understand him, respect him, but also because he can talk. And he can talk about the 50s like it was yesterday. And there aren't many that can contextualize their own work in relation to a conversation they had with Barnett Newman or Philip Guston in the 60s. It's an extraordinary thing. And Alex can do it. It's second nature for him to go through those conversations and to discuss his own work, his own, not his market, because he never really talks about the market, but, but the, the, the way he fought against abstraction and had arguments with these abstract artists earlier on. And it's, it's, so it's a sort of twofold thing. There's a general recognition of his age and, and what he's doing, um, but equally how he can relate people to the past in a, in the first sense. And, uh, so I, I, I think it's only going to increase and you'll start to see prices increase as as perhaps one or two formidable paintings come to the market and people fight for it. You know, that's that's an excellent point because not only can he speak about his contemporaries, uh, you know, in, in part because uh, of his age, but he is also remarkably articulate about 
art history and the kind of thinking that goes into his painting. Um, you know, wh when he does speak about uh, uh, his painting, he gets very specific about uh, a wide range of artists going through old masters and uh, 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 impressionist and modern uh, uh, painters that, that makes it very clear they're, they're, they're front of mind for, for him. Uh, and it's, yeah. a, it, it's a little bit rare to, to, to hear someone speak about painting as painting. Uh, as a dialogue between pa painters, especially given what I guess many people think of as, as being superficial subject matter. Oh, no, he, he talks about Cezanne, like, you know, that changed his life. And he talks about it now like it was yesterday. So, you know, and he's looking at contemporary painters. He's looking at young painters as well. And he's a great supporter of young painters. Um, and their careers, and uh, he 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 has an extraordinarily fresh and active, inquisitive mind. And um, I would urge anybody who is interested in his work to go online and look at the numerous YouTube interviews, because each one is amazing. You know, it talk he talks with an enormous honesty. Would he believe what he's saying or not, or relate to it? He talks with honesty and candor quite unburdened by um, any expectation of what people might think. Well, speak to me a little bit about the um, the collectors. Uh, you were just saying earlier, you know, the, the impression in, in Europe of him as, as an American painter. Is he someone who's bought, you know, because he's an American, because his style typifies something, uh, especially about uh, you know mid to late twentieth century America, or is it is it something singular to him as a, a painter? No, I think it's absolutely singular to him, and and that's perhaps why the the um, you talk about the market earlier, why the market is a general transition, why it's a why it's a slower evolution. People buy them because they like them and they relate to them. Um, and in Europe, um, they uh, had a strong connection with uh, his painting. I mean, there are many artists that have written on his work recently, from Toymans and Doig and people who, who I, I won't say cite him as an influence, but certainly cite him with great respect for what he's achieved. And, and, um, and I do think that Europe has been important in uh, the recognition of, uh, of these paintings. But, uh, but I don't think anybody especially puts him down as an American painter. That, that's, that's not the case. Oh, I'm, I meant more, you know, uh, especially the, the ones you immediately think of, these, um, these bright, colorful fields with these beautiful women in this almost um, uh, flat uh, surface. And it, it brings to mind, uh, you know, so much about, um, you know, the, the high point of, uh, uh, American, uh, you know, imagery somewhere between Warhol and Rosenquist, uh, uh and Lichtenstein well, well, maybe, there's, you know, if, if, if you're relating, if you're relating American art to billboards, then yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> you can't ignore the scale of ambition and ambition of these paintings, but, uh, the last painting I saw in Alex's studio was a painting that was 20 foot by 12, I think. It was all yellow with this sort of weird green abstraction on the surface. And he said, 
I spent the day trying to paint grass and shadows in grass. <laughs> I said to Alex, so you've become an abstract painter. And he said, absolutely not. This is grass. <laughs> you know, that is pretty universal. As art dealers now uh, find themselves at these fairs, often uh, with artists they share, but in 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 different locales at different fairs and all, uh, how do you guys sort things uh, out? Do you just keep in touch and uh, you know uh, try and make sure that everyone's um, supporting each other, or is it uh, a free for all? I mean, what's it like to share a global artist? Well, it's it's uh, it, until more recently it would have been fine geographically, uh, but um, I think in this day and age, especially when you're dealing with an artist as significant as Alex, um, there is there is a degree of understanding uh, amongst those charged with the responsibility of of representing him and bringing the work to the public, and um, we do our best to be as collegial as possible. Uh, in that regard. And uh, he had a show at the Serpentine last year in which uh, I think four of us, his four principal dealers, got together to support it. And and um, uh, to be honest with you, that's when it works best. When you're able to coordinate uh, and work with each other rather than showing up yeah, at a when, fair. And... When, uh, well, fairs are slightly different because fairs are, are just sort of commercial vehicles and and um, there's perhaps less communication amongst representatives as to what they're going to take to a fair. I mean, you might take um, more than you expect and then uh, that gives you the chance to not hang something or to hang something depending on how visible the artist might be generally in that fair. But, um, but when it comes to institutional shows, um, things that really require a kind of collegial um, uh, uh, relationship and understanding, uh, then in, in yeah, in most cases it works pretty well, and and it's in everybody's interest to support the artist. So, uh, just switching back to New York, what are you thinking about doing next with that space? I I, I presume that space is both a um, great opportunity because it's quite defined and specific, but also somewhat has a uh, uh, con constraints based on its size? Um, I'm not really looking at the constraints. I, I, I think that the great strength and opportunity of that space is its size. Um, and so it allows me to uh, put things together um, without an enormous amount of planning in advance. I can be very opportunistic. I can sense the market and do things that I think uh, people want to see. I mean, the best shows are the ones that you give people when they don't really know they wanted them, but they do when they see it, if you know what I mean. Um, and uh, that space affords me that luxury. Uh, I want to integrate it with my program in London and the artists I represent in London without um, conflicting the representation I, um, some of these artists might have with uh, New York galleries. Um, and we'll see. It's, it's, you know, it's still evolving. Um, and I've got all sorts of plans for it. Um, I'm taking it one step at a time. So you don't feel like a pressure to, you know, you've got, got this uh, show up and I have to have, uh, you know, uh, one or two in the fall and, and sort of keep it programmed? Yeah, or I do. I, 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 I do. And um, 
I'm just trying to work out which order to do these shows in, um, which, which, you know, which will be best time. I mean, one in any gallery, you need to prepare a bit in advance with a smaller space, perhaps less than something bigger, but, but it's just about timing. Um, it's about, uh, bringing things to people's attention, as I say, that are well-timed. And, uh, so yeah, I have two more shows planned in the second half of this year. And, um, and I hope each one will be as surprising as Alex's. Great. Uh, what are you doing in London uh, uh, for the rest of the year? Do you have uh, anything uh, announced or are you still working to, to balance the shows? No, I, I'm about to open an exhibition by China's most significant abstract painter, a man called Ding Yi. And um, I'll be bringing Ding Yi to New York uh, he has a close relationship, and in fact, indeed, friendship with Sean Scully, who has a has an amazing studio in Chelsea. And Sean's going to uh, allow Dingy to put up a couple of paintings in that studio um, for for people to see the new work. Uh, and this will coincide with um, a big exhibition. I don't know the title of it, I'm afraid, that's being curated and opening at the Guggenheim. Uh, of Chinese contemporary painting, I think, or Chinese contemporary art. Well, I've spent quite a lot of time there in the last four years, and I I like the place very much. It's evolving more slowly than people think, um, and they're not in any rush to be identified um, by the West, uh, uh, and they don't wish to emulate Western artists, which is um, a... Um, to shift from perhaps the, the first generation of Chinese artists that everybody sort of knows about from the 90s. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a quite an exciting time. You've really got to look hard to find the artists and, and then to bring them out and put them into context. So Ding Yi is my first, um, he's my first uh, show in that regard. So, so expand on something you just said about not being in a hurry and the evolution being uh, uh, slow. Uh, are are those you know? There's there's this. Um, you mean in China? Yeah, in China. I mean, there's this vein of of Chinese abstract pa- painting that clearly the market loves. You know, Zhao uh, uh, Wuqi uh, in particular that uh, uh, is historical. Are those painters yeah. engaged with with him, or is that just a simply a a, a market phenomenon separate well, I from? I think I think that they I think they relate to him. I mean that they're they're proud of their traditions and they they do not spend a lot of time, as I as I think I just said, trying to be you know that they don't wish to be identified as anything other than Chinese artists. Although their work doesn't necessarily present itself as Chinese. Um, you, you find in nearly every museum in China at the moment, the core of that museum is a profound traditional collection, whether it's uh, ink or uh, paintings or ceramics or whatever it is, but there's, there's a profound historic collection and everything revolves around that. And um, uh, I think that uh, there is a, definitely an interest in the West and in being seen in the West, but um, but they don't intend to lose their identity in the process. And uh, my interest in abstract painting, as you know, I, I have another of. No, I represent a number of artists, abstract painters, Western abstract painters, and and I, I found in Ding Yi an artist who can be seen as a great abstract painter without being pigeonholed as Chinese. 
Well, that that certainly seems to be going in both directions right now. I mean, in Asia, there's the development of a much broader Asian um, abstract, not only abstract, but there are a significant number of Asian abstract uh, artists who are selling in the Asian sales. And there's this connection now between uh, uh, bringing artists like uh, de Kooning uh, to to Asia and the the you know ongoing uh, unearthing of all of these uh, uh, Zawuki uh, uh, paintings that are been in the West that are going back uh, uh, to Asia. I mean, it certainly makes sense that there there should be art you know global artists on both sides uh, of the coin, as it were. Yeah, well, I mean, later in the year, I plan a, a big exhibition there with Anthony Tapiez. And um, Tapia's new Zawuki, and um, and uh, um, in fact he he showed in in uh, in China. I mean specifically China. I'm not talking about Asia as a whole. Um, but he had a show in China um, just off um, Tiananmen Square, actually at exactly the same time as the Trouble those years ago. And and um, so when I show him at an art fair, he's a fairly well-recognized figure, well-recognized artist, and it'll be exciting to take him back and see how, after many, many years, how he's perceived by a new generation. Do you have a gallery in Hong Kong or, or space no, in, no, in China, don't. or do you, do you do any sort of temporary shows there as well? I've done, actually, I took Alex there last year during the West Bund Fair in November. Um, I took a space um, uh, a sort of pop-up gallery space and, and exhibited a number of Alex's very large paintings. Um, uh, and, I mean, that was his first show in that part of the world, and it was incredibly well-received, and people absolutely loved it. But it was, a, it was a one-off thing. I think, you know, there is there is a market there that is developing slowly, as I said, and you have to be very specific when you enter it and, and, and fairly determined as to what you're doing and why. And um, so I, I went last year with Alex. This year we'll go with, with Anthony Tapies, but in the middle I don't feel the need to have a, have a gallery there. I mean, there are certain currency controls which make it extraordinarily difficult to do business with them anyway. Well, but if you can do that kind of pop-up uh, show effectively, uh, doesn't it make more sense to to come and do a show than it is, than to maintain a gallery uh, year-round? Well, it it certainly does because you take the benefit of that moment. You know, you have the excitement of that moment with the fair and the the energy that's generated in the city at that time. In fact, there are two fairs in that particular moment, and everybody goes and opens uh, their principal exhibitions for the year, but. Uh, that there are certain restrictive elements that would that are very prohibitive to the idea of opening a gallery in in China. I mean, you physically cannot take the money out. So if you took an artist in and you sold the work, you can't pay the artist. Well, that that somewhat defeats the purpose of um, having a show. <laughs> well, it'll all change at some point, but uh, yes. That, that's, that's absolutely true. Those constraints uh, notwithstanding, it sounds like having the flexibility and freedom to do shows there, but not necessarily, you know, take on the real estate and the staff is sort of part of uh, 
what what makes it uh, uh, viable for you rather oh, than I having... love it. I, I absolutely love it. I've I've organised um, uh, four major exhibitions for Sean's Gully in uh, various Chinese museums. Um, a, tour, a tour that was enormously successful and well received. And with Alex last year, you know these events are um, incredibly exhilarating and 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 fresh and new and exciting. It's uh, it's quite unlike your the, the sort of routine of having a gallery and a program which repeats itself month after month uh, in the traditional model. It's 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 very very exciting to go to. To, to Shanghai and be installing the show the night before it's due to open <laughs> because it got held up in customs. I'm assuming you're referring to the sculpture show that toured uh, the Chinese museums? Well, it wasn't the sculpture show. There was a big sculpture in it. It was actually, there were two tours. One went through from Shanghai to Beijing, from the Himalayas Museum to Kaffir in Beijing. And then there was a separate tour. The first was so successful and, and so well received and attended that... Um, the three other cities uh, wanted to do something, and and so we put together a different tour, and that went through, um, uh, as I say, three other cities ending up in Wuhan. I think last this time last year, and and that's part of what's what's driving things in China is the the establishment of uh, museums that need exhibitions. Correct. I think that's. That's certainly true. I mean, there is that the, they are extraordinarily well informed. Uh, we done. Uh, I did a number of talks uh, with Sean and and actually Ding Yi, in which the, the two were in conversation. You do them in a bookshop, and three hundred people turn up. It's and they know they know what they know what they're talking about. They know the work. They've seen it. They're familiar with it, and their questions are super bright and switched on. Um, there's a, there's, a, there's a general hunger. Uh, I mean, one of the keys is to publish publish your books, publish your catalogs in Chinese, because because there just isn't that much written in Chinese. That that must be exciting to to bring things to a population that's you know deeply engaged, rather than sort of fighting for attention with all these other cultural products. Well. I completely agree. I and mean, somebody said to me before the first tour, they sort of stopped me and said, you know, if, if, if you're going to do this, you really do have to understand why. And, um, of course, I just thought, well, you go to China, how exciting is that? But, but, but the moment you're there, you realize that, you know, everything is done for a reason. The relationships you build there are two-way relationships. And assuming there is this equality in the relationship, there is a level of trust and understanding, even though you can't necessarily speak directly to uh, your your friend or opposite or or, or a colleague. Um, but but that makes it all the more extraordinary. You know, you are doing exciting things in a new world, and you see the results when people pour in um, and recognize it, and then of course write about it and whatever they talk about on WeChat, which is just, you know, a massive amount of attention. And do, do you have any of those people you've met uh, through these tours or the shows you've done who uh, show up in, in London or New York or at an art fair uh, to buy art from you sort of outside of China? Absolutely. I mean, I've got 20 of them coming to Dingy's dinner in three nights' time. <laughs> so that's... 
that's a result. Um, and um, and they've come here for it. Uh, the Hong Kong fair this year, I thought was was a fabulous fair for the first time. Uh, a fair that was predominantly based around um, uh, a new audience, an Asian audience, a, a, a strong, strong Chinese audience. In previous years, I think one relied on on um, uh, sort of Western tourists and Australians and and uh, maybe some Koreans and people who understood the Western world. But this time, there was a, an immensely strong crowd, a, a big, a, a big percentage of uh, non-English speaking. Um, locals, you might say, who who are looking at it for the first time and embracing it with no cynicism, you know, no, it's just all new and exciting. And um, when you do talk to them and you do, through a translator in most cases, you do have a chance to discuss, you know, why they're looking. They know exactly what's going on. And that's not something you see in many Western fairs. Well, there, the, that is seems to be the theme you hear from a lot of people who um, uh, either sell art in Hong Kong or deal with mainland China is just the absolute speed uh, with which the collectors um, acquire knowledge and become, uh, you know, very sophisticated uh, uh, participants. That the the idea of, of of bringing your you know your B stuff to Hong Kong uh, and getting away with it, uh, like bringing your B stuff no, no, to no, to you, to, you to you Brazil, uh, it just it it just doesn't cut it. Uh, uh, people are are very well informed. I'm not sure, really, that in this day and age you should bother doing that in any fair. I mean, uh, I've done the Turin fair, and the audience there was fantastically well informed, and people with B stuff just looked like B stands. Uh, Mexico City, it was the same uh, for the last two years when I've done that fair. And you really have to put your front foot forward and work out, you know, why you're doing this fair. I mean, really, why are you doing it? Why are you attending? And um, and that's the same, particularly the same in uh, in China, because they 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 know what they're looking at, and um, and they respect people who who are brave and you know make the effort. I guess we we don't realize just how much of a fishbowl uh, you all are in, and um, you know that there's not really a place to hide, as it were, or, or or maybe I should say to craft something that you can count on taking place, you know, in multiple locations or over a longer period of uh, of time. So it must mean you know juggling a fair amount of. Um, you know, scheduling and uh, uh, artists and uh, co collectors to make it all converge that, in the right that place. Is, that is all true. That is all true. Every, but, you know, each gallery has its own model and works in its own way. But the principle of what you've outlined is correct. And I think where you, you perhaps, um, where we can have another conversation is how that might change um, in the coming years. Because... If if you've been doing this for 35 years as I have, uh, you know there is a point at which you you are looking for fresh and new. And some of the things we've been discussing haven't changed in 25, 30 years. About uh, how it's presented, uh, you know, owning a gallery on the street level and all. all. Well, I mean, I, I think it's uh, it's true of the way galleries look. You know, the way galleries were designed. Uh, perhaps the way they've not changed, not evolved, uh, the locations, the cities, uh, the audience, uh, and in some cases, the artists. Um, 
you know, it's the art world is, uh, I, I think, something that needs to be light on its feet and remain fresh and new and relevant. And, um, you know, to that extent, you know, maybe there are some exciting changes in front of us. That is, uh, I think, one of the most interesting th- things that it, it really, as the the whole world rushes into this and it reflects other changes, broader changes in the economies, the idea of it, the art world being light on its feet, is, in many ways seems to be its advantage uh, and maybe just needs to gravitate more towards that. Um, well, we'll see. I mean, watch this space. People's real estate is pretty expensive these days. Yep, and and if that's the 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 thing that's weighing you down, uh, it really is the the first thing you're going to attack in trying to come up with a better way to run your business. That's entirely possible, and I think to that extent, my little space in New York, sixteen by thirty-four, is the ideal option. <laughs> I look forward to part two of this conversation. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 